This is episode 11. It's no longer a fancy number. Episode 11. Well, it's a prime number. That has to count for something, right? It is a prime number, so that's cool. Um, why don't we start with a listener question? These are fun. Um, I kind of hope we start getting more of them because I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm enjoying dealing with them. Yeah, me too. Um, so we, we, have a, we have a cool question here from Michael um, Sewell, I think. Sewell? Sewell? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But anyway, Michael asks, um, I'm taking a trip in the fall to Italy. I was wondering if you three have any advice about camera theft and how to avoid it. I want to be comfortable taking my camera with me without feeling paranoid that someone will take it. I'm afraid that I will be too afraid to lose it and then I'll never take it out. What can I do to help ensure that I'm not a victim while traveling? It's such a great question. No doubt about it. It's so good. Um, and it's a feeling that I, I know that I have encountered before. And it um, it's something that worries me more than anything else is not so much the theft, but that idea that I'm taking this amazing camera equipment and that for whatever reason, I'm not going to be using it while I'm on this trip, right? In, in other words, I'm wasting... Um, the potential of that of that equipment. I'm just sort of carting it around as an extra piece of luggage. So um, I don't know. I mean, have you guys ever actually had a bad experience traveling somewhere with with equipment? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. I once had a backpack stolen from me, uh, and it contained uh, my MacBook. And it, that was about two weeks before I was supposed to defend my thesis. Oh wow! Yikes! So yeah, it was all of my work was there. A couple of years worth of work was there. Uh, thank God for Dropbox, <laughs> because otherwise <laughs> I would have, I would have just banged my head against the wall. Wow, that's rough. But yeah, it happened in a train station. Um, I was uh, traveling back to Madrid uh, with a friend, and uh, by the time we got we got to Madrid, we stopped for a cup of coffee before you know saying goodbye and so on. And uh, it happened while we were having the coffee. We left the bags, several bags that each of us were were carrying. We left them right next to us, uh, you know, on the on the cafeteria tables. And uh, when we finished and went to pick them up, my backpack my backpack was gone. Yeah, I didn't even see it happen. Brutal! Wow. So that's definitely a thing that can happen to you, especially if you're in a foreign country and you're not very vigilant about your surroundings yeah and uh, i learned my lesson i can tell you that <laughs> i i i never have had any sort of experience like that guys i'm so useless in this question like I, the, when i read the question i went i didn't even know re people were that worried about it so i'll just excuse myself at this point <laughs> well uh, so i've actually never had anything stolen um either but this is a, a concern that i've had while traveling and i think um <laughs> There's, there's a risk factor involved in traveling with expensive equipment, and it fluctuates based on where you're going. Um, some countries and some cities are more vulnerable to pickpocketing than others, I think. And so one thing that I like to do is if I'm going to be traveling to a new place, I like to try and get a sense from people who've been there before and from you know articles and your usual research methods of... Um, how high the risk is in that place. Because sometimes you, you'll go to a place and it's basically like, oh, theft just doesn't happen. That's not it. Like your chances of having any problems are vanishingly small, in which case I just don't worry about it. But I remember when my mom recently went on a trip to, um, to Rome and uh, that was one of the things that all of her friends who'd been there before were warning her about. They said, look, if you're, if you're going to bring um, camera equipment and things like that, just be aware that um, there is a problem with uh, pickpocketing uh, in, in the city. So that was just something that we had to, uh, you know, I, I helped her prepare for that, I suppose, with, uh, with equipment and how she was carrying it and things like that, just to, to minimize the, the risk. Um, and I guess what Michael wants to know is, is what, it, like, concretely, what do you do to protect yourself? Well, that's, that's part one, I would say, the yeah. re reading up on the likelihood of that happening to you on your particular destination. And, uh, you mentioned Rome and he, he's actually, traveling to Italy, uh, he, he said as much. Well, that's, yeah, that's why I use the example, because, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly the, the same place, so it works out nicely. Uh, I, I, the, the problem with that is that it's a bit of a double-edged sword, in that if you read too much, you, you, can, you can sort of uh, become too scared, yeah. almost, and you stop enjoying your, your time in the, right. in the country to, to a point. And that happened to me a little bit when I went to Brazil, I spent a week by myself in Rio, 
and I I had read so many horrible stories about uh, you know theft in the city and violence and all of that, and that that I spent uh, most of my time there like super worried that something was going to happen to me, and of course in the end nothing nothing happened at all. Yeah. But but I was told like do not wear a watch or do not uh, take your iPhone out in public or you know those things that I don't even think about when I'm in Europe for the most part. But there you you have to be a little bit more uh, self conscious about those things. So it depends a, a lot on each particular place, each, each country, each city. Uh, but yeah, having a uh, some. Uh, information that reliable information is essential, I think, but you have to be able to balance it a bit, a little bit, and not get too too caught up in that. Right. So that's let's say that's step one. Um, step two, I think this is one that that for whatever reason it does not get discussed that much, but um, insure your equipment. Yeah. Right. For sure. Like just buy, get insurance for your equipment. If you know what, because that's the here's the thing people look at insurance and they say that's an expense like i'm paying for nothing right but you're not you're paying for peace of mind this is exactly the the like a perfect example of why you would want travel insurance and equipment insurance because it means that you can go to these places that might be at a higher risk of theft and again chances are very good that you're like there's not going to be a problem you'll you'll have a wonderful trip and it's fine but you'll have an even better trip if you go there knowing that this risk exists, but that fundamentally you don't have to worry about the financial loss of the equipment because it's insured against theft, right? Then it's like, oh, it's lost. And it's also a matter of safety, right? Because again, some of these things are just basic robbery where it's like, okay, I'm, I've stolen your thing. You don't even see it happen. It's gone. But what if it's a mugging? What if you're actually like at gunpoint or at knife point or something? You don't want to feel that hesitation of like, oh, I don't want to give away my camera. I can't afford to whatever. Like that whole conversation disappears. It's like, yes, have my camera. You in exchange, I will be safe and fine. And that's the important thing, right? You you live another day, the camera's gone, whatever. Um, it's insured. So that's another, like, that's my step two, I think is the obvious one. If you're concerned about it, just get insurance because that's, that's honestly the best tactic. The other ones are a little more like, yeah. So uh, for instance, there's a, uh, I forget the name off the top of my head right now, but there's a, a company that's kind of like Black Rapid in that they make camera straps. But what sets them apart is that they, um, they're anti-theft straps. They've got some uh, cord running through the interior that's impossible to cut. So one of the common techniques for um, stealing a camera is when it's, you know, just hanging around someone's neck or uh at their shoulder uh, with a strap, a uh, one person will distract you, the other one will just quickly slice the strap, grab the camera, and they're gone. Right. Um, so this prevents them from being able to do that because the cord will stop the cutting from getting all the way through the strap, but it doesn't really solve the problem of theft in my head because it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Now I know that you're stealing from me. <laughs> you still have a knife. Right, exactly. Uh, Run. Right, like it's... It, <laughs> The, tr the transaction ends up in the same place. It just kind of gets deferred and you piss them off. So I'm not sure that it's... Yeah, and you also don't want... It's exactly that pissing off that you, that you, that you just said. Uh, you don't want it to be too complicated to remove the camera from your body in case things become violent. You don't, you don't want to be too tangled up and take too much time. It has to be as painless as possible. And someti sometimes these anti-theft measures actually work and end up being... Uh, you know, dangers themselves. Exactly. So that's what I'm getting at with that. And that's why I, I'm my number one thing is is just ensure the equipment, because ultimately, that's the only that's the only thing that's going to bring you peace of mind and minimal risk to yourself. Right. Um, because the, the thing is, that even if you're a fairly, you know, you're a strong person, and you consider yourself able to defend yourself, and that may well be true. But in general, these pickpockets don't work alone. So it's not like you're going to have this one on one kung fu showdown with a thief in the streets of Rome, right? Like there's a group and they're extremely good at what they do. Exactly. So it's it's never that easy. And rather than having to worry about any of this um, and being on edge as you're wandering the city, there's, there's a lot of value in just knowing that that equipment is safe. Now, having said that, this is the other side of it. So the camera itself is one thing. The bigger problem is what happens to the photos that are on that camera. Yes. Okay, here we go. So this is, this is where it gets more complicated because this is where you actually don't want to lose the camera, not so much because of the value of the equipment, but because of the memory cards on them. Right. And 
The problem is here there's not really an elegant solution except for having a good system for backing up your photos while you're traveling, which is something that we're actually going to talk a little bit about later on in this episode. But um, the issue is that what happens if, you know, I've been out shooting all day, you know, I've, I've gone on a trip and this theft happens in the evening. I haven't had a chance yet to go back to my hotel and back up those images. Someone's trying to steal my camera. This is where I think those safety straps have some merit because, okay, now I know you're trying to steal from me. I'm not going to say, no, don't take my camera. I'm going to say, give me a second. Let me take the memory cards. You take the camera. Yeah. <laughs> memory cards, he says, as an ex-pro two owner. Wow. That's some, that's some cold blood, cold blood right there. I'd just say, give me a second. I'll, I'll tie, tie the camera up in a nice little bow for you. <laughs> you can have it. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's anyway, that's that's my perspective on that. I think it's um, that's the difficult side of this problem is ultimately protecting the images. Um, like if you've got insurance, if you're willing to lose the camera, um, th that's the that's the other side of it. It's OK. How do I um, how do I protect the images, which which is the whole point, really? You don't want to lose um, those. Right. There's a bit more to it than that, I would say, because uh, at the worst case scenario, if you have a healthy backup strategy, you're going to waste, what, half a day of pictures. Yeah. You're going to you're going to lose those. That's yeah, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world, uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, so the the insurance aspect that we talked about before protects you about the economic, uh, you know, uh, the, the economic aspect of losing several thousand dollars potentially of gear right and that's very important but that there's the other side is not only what happens to the pictures but that you're left the remainder of your trip probably without any camera to capture more pictures right yeah and that's where prevention is key if you i mean we assume that if it's a violent theft then there's no way to protect yourself against that other than to just mitigate the economic losses. Yep. But if it's a pickpocket situation, you do uh, that. You do have uh, quite a few things you can do in order to at least minimize the the risk for yourself, right? So right. that's where uh, having a, a good bag that doesn't expose any zippers, for example, is is really important uh, to also make sure that you keep everything. Uh, neatly closed and and if you can have if, if it can be locked even better so there are there are quite a few preventive measures that you can take to ensure at least uh that the, the, the chances are minimal and uh, if i think we should probably get a little bit more into this what do you guys do when you're when you're in a you know in a unfamiliar uh, place and, and you're a little bit concerned that something like this may happen to you. Well, for one thing, I keep my gear in the most unassuming bag that I own, which in my case is the Think Tank retrospective. Um, and I try and make it so that I'm only ever carrying, um, like if, you, if you've got one of those setups where you actually have a hotel home base and there's a safe or something like that, then chances are I will try to um, keep things like the memory cards and whatever non-essential equipment, extra lenses, things like that in the safe and only carry with me um, the exact equipment that I'm using for that given scenario so that at least, again, I'm not losing everything. Um, and there's also something about keeping your phone and your wallet and things like that in separate pockets in different places. Like don't, don't put everything in the same bag, right? That's, that's one key element, I think. And sometimes it's a bit of an annoyance if you're traveling somewhere very hot and you, you don't have a tremendous number of pockets cause you're not wearing that much clothing, but it's worth trying to, it's, it's worth trying to put things in as many different places as you can, just so that if any one particular um, thing is taken from you, you don't necessarily have to lose everything. Exactly. Um, especially in a scenario where they're just, you know, grabbing the bag and running. So it's like, okay, they've got the bag. So that means my camera equipment is screwed, but at least I still have my passport. I've got my phone, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. This is not photography related, but you should always, uh, leave your passport at the hotel, I would say, or at least a copy of it, you know, like a photocopy usually is good enough to get a, some sort of emer emergency, uh, ID if you get stranded on a foreign country without ID. So that's that's yep. critical. And also uh, always leave some cash behind. And if you're going to be doing a lot of walking, 
I would also probably say don't keep all your cash inside your wallet. Just it never hurts to to keep a couple couple bills, you know, outside in a, in a different pocket or something like that. And that sounds like super paranoid, but it's a, it's just very simple to do. Hey, it makes sense. And I think this is a set of tools that you look at and you judge how many of them you have to actually implement based on where you're going. So again, it's that idea of doing your research first so that you understand what kind of um, what kind of place you're visiting as far as the risk of these kinds of things. And then you just act right. accordingly. So um, things that I've done in the past, if you guys are curious, I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do you guys travel with a backpack or versus a messenger bag? Like we've talked about this a thousand times over, but a messenger bag at least puts the equipment, you know, kind of to your side. And your eyes are, you can probably see the messenger bag better than any zippers opening um, behind you if you have a backpack on, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so a messenger bag would be, could be like a, a benefit there uh, for team messenger bag. Um, another thing that I do, I, maybe this is a, a really nice problem to have or a nice thing to have, but like I, my Jacqueline will often shoot photos with her camera or with a second camera. I'll often shoot photos with my iPhone and my camera when we're traveling. So if I do lose something at the very least, like I've got photos on multiple devices from the same locations. Um, so that's kind of a fail safe. It's not necessarily the most brilliant way to do things. It's also a very expensive way to do, to have backups on when you're traveling. But that would be the other method that I use is to make sure that I have photos on my iPhone as well as my camera, as well as the second camera on in Jacqueline's hands. Yeah, that works very well. I think that's great advice. And it also kind of touches on one of the other um, sort of non-standard benefits of having a camera that is Wi-Fi equipped or, or a phone um, with a SD card adapter or something like that. So that if you have just taken some photos that you know are very important to you, if you take a moment to just safely pull them onto another device so that at least they don't exist in just one place, then that's another benefit. And of course, if you're using the Wi-Fi, then that's easier because you don't have to worry about cables. You don't have to worry about anything. It's just a quick, like, okay, turn on the Wi-Fi, send the photo over. And then you know, at least that at least it's protected. Right. You know, if the camera goes, you still got that image on your phone or on your iPad or whatever it is. Yeah. Plus, hey, add a benefit of GPS on your phone and you can track yourself afterwards. And anyway, thousand benefits. Exactly. Yeah. So, so let's, let's actually talk a little bit about this, this travel, um, backup problem because this is um this is a big topic i think and it's one that we uh, we're actually discussing a bunch on slack right now because several of us have trips coming up and we're trying to figure out what devices to bring what like storage medium and what kind of workflow makes the most sense for trying to keep track of several days worth of photos while you're out in the field so that you're not stuck in a position where everything just lives on the sd cards and you kind of hope for the best so I went with, I, I, I studied this far too much, to be honest. Um, so I had an <laughs> iPad Pro or I have an iPad Pro and I was thinking, okay, like it's a 32 gigabyte model. So I thought, okay, I could import the photos into the iPad and store them on the iPad, but I, 32 gigabytes isn't a whole lot of space. So you could buy like a, a one of those, there's a, a hard drive that has from, I think it's from WD Western Digital. You can just slide the SD card right into it. Um, and back it up and use the like use iOS or use your Mac to um, navigate the interface and import into the the hard drive while you're going. So you could do that method, like you could have SD cards and hard drives. But all, all of this would revolve around um, like you'd have to do it at the end of the day, right? You probably wouldn't be importing them during the day if we're talking about theft, right? Um, so there's that option. Um, or you could just bring a laptop with lots of extra space and import the photos into the laptop and use at multiple SD cards. Now you've got multiple backups in, in different areas. So that's the method that I went with is that I think I'm going to buy extra SD cards and then import into a laptop and leave the laptop either at the hotel at the end of the day or, or that kind of thing. Um, Right. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the most cost-effective way of doing things. Certainly isn't, but it also gave me some other benefits as well. So that's that's where I ended up on it, and I'm hoping that it helps with the theft part of it. I really hope that um, that I've got like redundant backup wherever I go. Right, and it may not be the most cost-effective way uh, in terms of a backup strategy. Right. But there's a legitimate need for a laptop when you're traveling. You know. On, on many situations. So I think that it makes 
complete sense to take one with you instead of instead of an iPad. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm fully on board with that. And I think the like the laptop I'll use after the trip too, which was the other thought. You know, a hard right. drive with an SD card in it or SD card slot. I just I probably would use it for the trip, and that would be it. So right, definitely. The only thing I would add to your setup would be another external hard drive. You know, even if you put the pictures inside the laptop, I would keep another copy in the in 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 a separate external drive. Yeah. Right. Triple backup. Whew. Fair enough. Fair enough. And of course, I wouldn't delete the memory cards. No. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, at least until I've I've uh, come back from the trip. Right. Any any suggestions? Like, what have you guys found, Marius? What have you found? You're going on a trip here shortly. I am, and so this is actually a question that I'm asking myself um, as well. And I just want to say, for anyone out there who designs products, can you please just build a proper external hard drive that can not only quickly copy and you know clone um, SD cards and compact flashcards, but also um, copy one to another so you can have duplicates and format them and things like like just an external this used to be a thing right this is what frustrates me there used to be products that were dedicated to mobile photo backup and then people just sort of stopped making them because they said oh well now people just carry their laptops and that's great i don't want to carry my laptop i don't own a laptop i don't want to put all these photos on my ipad if i can avoid it i mean in my case i've got the 128 gigabytes so i've got room to to you know pull some some stuff onto it but i don't want to do that photo management on the ipad is not great no um in, especially in terms of like just it all goes into photos it's all this one big ambiguous thing and i th that's not great so i don't if i can avoid doing that i want to right i don't want to carry a computer just so that i can protect my photos it's dumb it's an unnecessary weight if i could have something that looks like an external drive is an external drive, but just happens to have the card slots and the intelligence to do something with them, that would be a product I would pay good money for because there's nothing else like it. I mean, that that's that's something that just seems like such an obvious right. um, product to make. I think I can't possibly be the only person in a similar position who does not want to travel with that much technology if he can avoid it. So please, somebody build something <laughs> like we used to have that works with modern card standards that's quick and that will allow us to do this kind of photo backup on the go easily without having to carry a bunch of extra devices with you. Right. And do it in the next few months so that Marius can buy it before he goes on his trip. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Before the end of June. Alvaro, any thoughts? Like, what? How do you? What? What would be your recommendation here? I think I'm very, very uh, in sync with what you just described, uh, Josh. Okay. I do prefer to take a laptop with me when I'm traveling. I've always done it, so I, I don't see a reason to stop doing it now. Uh, and since I'm already taking the laptop with me, it makes all the sense in the world to use it for, you know, photo storage or or right. to manage the the backup strategy at least, because that's the thing. 512 gigs, which is what most modern laptops with SSDs uh, typically have uh, for storage these days, uh, at the most, because one terabyte laptops are... Expensive. Ooh. I would say rare. Yeah, expensive and rare. So if we assume that you have uh, 512, 512 gigabytes available, um, the, it's really, it, it sounds like a lot, but if you take a lot of pictures and it's a long trip, you're totally going to fill that up. And the problem with that is that uh, SSDs, uh, you know, the performance suffers quite a bit as they become uh, more filled with with data. So you should always aim to keep roughly, uh, probably 20-30% of it at the, at the very least, uh, you know, free. So that's that's a limitation that you don't have with external drives and that's why i would i was advising earlier to to take a separate external drive and Smart. of course you can keep a copy of the pictures in the laptop itself uh, but if you see that it's starting to fill up you need to have a separate a separate storage device where you can just offload those yeah good point Along those same lines, I just wanted to mention, I came across a really amazing product um, recently that is perfect for this kind of workflow. We've started using it at the agency to offload footage from our cards after a shoot, but it works just as fine for photos. So it's, it's an app called Hedge. Um, as far as I understand, it's just for Mac right now. It probably won't come to Windows, so um, sorry, um, Windows folks. But in any event, it's basically an, <laughs> it's, it's an app that's designed 
only for transferring and backing up footage, photos, whatever, from external drives to cards, cards to store, whatever, any kind of source destination setup. The nice thing is that, first of all, it's fast. Second of all, it actually verifies file integrity while it's doing it, can resume if something fails. Um, and you can also do multiple transfers in parallel with those um, uh, same protective features in place, which means that it would be really nice and easy to plug in your SD card, plug in an external drive, and then say, okay, Hedge, now copy everything from this SD card, first of all, onto my laptop hard drive, but then also in parallel onto this additional external backup drive that I've brought with me. And you can automate it and create workflows and all this kind of thing. So it's it's a really wonderful app. Um, it, it makes it a little more um, predictable and a little less flaky than just using Finder and dragging and dropping things over, which to me is important because I don't want to worry about corruption. I don't want to worry about any of that. It verifies everything. It makes sure that your files are making it there safely. Um, and to me, that's a big deal because especially when I'm traveling, yes, it's nice to know that I've copied it from one to the other, but I want to know that it's done safely because I might want to reuse that card. So I don't want to format it and then look at the photos on my laptop the next day and realize that something went wrong during the transfer. And now those photos are gone. Right. And holy smokers, it's free for two tran two simultaneous transfers. Free. Zero. Zero dollars. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's a really <laughs> good find. Um, I highly recommend it. I've been using it again at the agency, um, and it's it's a really nice a really nice piece of software. Very focused. It does one thing very well, and that's it. And that's exactly the kind of software I like. So beauty. Um, Great find. Yeah. Great find. It looks amazing. To the developers, good job. And to uh, to the listeners, hopefully you'll you'll find it uh, useful. Um, for this kind of thing. So basically what you wanted was an external hard drive with Hedge built in. Exactly. That's literally, that is the perfect device for this scenario. If someone builds an external drive with the relevant card slots and Hedge built in, we're done. That's it. Right. However, however many zeros you want to add onto the price, fine. <laughs> Just make it real by June. <laughs> we should totally kickstart the hell out of it. <laughs> All over it. So I think we've, uh, hopefully we've answered Michael's question um, sufficiently here. There's, again, it's it's a difficult question, but the what it comes down to, to me, is how do you balance um, feeling safe about going somewhere with feeling um, re relatively protected about your gear or, or not worrying about what happens if something should go wrong? And that's why, you know, do the research, get your stuff insured, and then potentially um, look into these... Um, mobile backup workflows that we've talked about, because if you have all those things in place, then you really shouldn't have anything to worry about. You can go out, you can shoot, you can take your camera out. Um, and ultimately that's the goal is, is do whatever you've got to do to feel comfortable taking your camera out when you travel. And that's why maybe it's better to work backwards and, and ask yourself, okay, what, what's stopping me from taking the camera out? You know, and for some people that was, you know, oh, it's too heavy or blah, blah, blah. And in that case, they made smaller cameras and Da, da, da. But for, for the security angle, I think it's it's a matter of knowing that if it goes away for whatever reason, you're not entirely screwed. Like there's some right. thing in place to protect your photos and your financial investment in the equipment. Right. And the final piece of advice, always own one more Leica Q than the thieves can take with them. <laughs> there it is. Or the D5 to smash on their heads as they run away. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's probably better, actually. <laughs> Oh, we have great advice on the show, guys. Yeah. Oh, man. Just the best. The most expensive, of course, but... Uh, yeah, buy expensive advice. things and hit other people on the head with it. <laughs> oh, <you? laughs> well, <laughs> we should put a disclaimer on this one. You can actually chase them away with the Phantom. <laughs> I could do that. That's it. You can find their secret lair. <laughs> or, hang on, combo move. I attach a D5 to the Phantom and drop it on them from above. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's a winner right there. You can do like a bombing run. <laughs> oh, we need a disclaimer on this show. Yeah, please don't listen to anything that we say. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've got a good segue here, guys. Let's see if I can come up with this. So we were talking about laptops here before, um, and Alvaro was talking about a 512 gigabyte solid state drive inside the laptop. Now, I'm actually in this scenario. Uh, my wife and I headed into Winnipeg yesterday. Um, we... I made my decision. I'm going with a laptop for our trip to store photos instead of the iPad and an external drive. I might get the external drive yet, but 
another story for another day. Um, so Apple announced or uh, released updated MacBooks this week, 12 inch MacBooks, which everybody talks about how they're all underpowered and there's only one port and you're crazy if you buy one. And well, hey, Jacqueline and I bought one. <laughs> um, and we bought the mid-range one, the 512 gigabyte model um, with the core M5. Uh, processor. Um, so I'm, I'm actually recording this episode for the first time on the little MacBook. And I'm, I mean, of course, right now I'm just infatuated. I love the science. I love the, I love everything about it. Um, I might run into limitations eventually, but so far so good. Nice. Um, so yeah, that's where the, the computer I'm going with. I saw some videos and stuff online of people editing photos in Lightroom with the MacBook from last year and so on. And it didn't seem, you know, the point of the laptop is more to store photos while we're traveling and so on um, and to do a little bit of light photo work. So I think I'll be okay. Um, I hope so because it's an expensive machine, but um, it, it's certainly the difference in size um, between the MacBook Pro, the 13 inch and this little 12 inch MacBook is it's night and day difference. So I don't, I think it'll be nice for when we're traveling. Yeah. It's going to come in super handy. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not as intimidating as a D5. You probably won't <laughs> want to hit people over the head with it. No, no, it might snap in half, <laughs> but it's so thin you can cut them with it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Hey, I have a knife. <laughs> I have a MacBook. <laughs> uh, excuse me for a second. Okay. So that was part, part one of the trip the, of into heading into Winnipeg. But the second part of the trip, um, back in, I think it was January, I bought my Sony a seven two. And at that very same date, I actually put both, um, I put both the 25 millimeter Battis and the 85 millimeter Battis on pre-order. And then about a week after that, Sony announced, or it was some, maybe a week, early February, Sony announced the new um, GM lenses, the 85 millimeter F1.4, uh, the Sony 24 to 70 F2.8, and then the big 70 to 200 F2.8, which we still don't have a price on. Um, but anyway, they, uh, I pre-ordered that lens as well. I didn't, we don't, uh, the local Henry store in Winnipeg doesn't uh, charge anything for pre-ordering. So I thought, Hey, what the heck? Let's pre-order both the baddest 85 and the Sony 85, see which one comes first. And like, likely that'll be the one that I buy. The baddest won the race. So I have that one in hand, but the GM lens showed up this week and I got to go take a look at it. So I spent five to 10 minutes in the store taking a look at it. And, um, came away with some thoughts and I pounded them into a quick article that I put on the newsprint last night, late last night. Um, and my impressions seemed to fly in the face of some major reviewers online. And I, um, I came away, uh, I don't know, like a little bit disappointed maybe in some of the work that I'm reading online. Cause I dis I disagreed with a lot of the stuff that other guys are saying. Um, but I did come away thinking that the 85 millimeter GM lens is the, the premium, the better of the two between that it and the baddest when it comes to image quality. Um, so long story short is I think it's the better lens. It's certainly more expensive, but um, should we dig into some of those impressions? Like I, yeah. I don't want to go, I did write them out and I think they're fairly, I, you know, it probably takes five minutes to read my five minute impression. <laughs> um, but you know, um, like first and foremost, when the lady, the sales lady pulled out the the lens out of the box, she hands it to me and both of us go like, oh, that thing's big. Like it's big. It's <laughs> it's not like, this is not a small lens. It I've got average sized hands and like they, it fills my hand. Like it's a full, it's huge. Um, and it's not light. Biggest lens you've ever used, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I've used the 40 to 150 F2.8 Pro from Olympus. Like that's a big lens but it's like longer and skinnier. Like this one's more like, you know, it's shorter and like big girth, like big width. Right. Um, yeah. And it's heavy, like it's dense. You can feel it. There's a lot of glass in it and it's, it's big. Um, and so we, and the exterior is made of metal, right? You know, I, I think so. I didn't take the time to officially confirm okay. that, but I, I believe so. Um, so we're sitting at the table there and like, I pull out the baddest, I brought it along just to compare exactly. And I put the baddest on the table and I put the GM on the table and like, they were like, there's a significant difference in size. Um, you know, the spec sheet says one thing and then there's real life. And, um, you know, you put both lenses onto the camera and like, there's a fee, a difference in feeling both like, you know, when you put it up to your eye, I would, I could shoot with the baddest one-handed. I don't think I'd feel safe shooting with the GM one-handed um, if I had it right. up to my eye. 
Um, I like the size of the the GM in hand when you have it up to the viewfinder. You know, you're using two hands, your left hand's on the lens. Like it feels um, the size of the lens really improved the ergonomics of the lens. I loved the way it felt. Um, and the weight at that point with two hands basically does become negligible. You know, you're using two hands, it's it's okay. But, you know, I was watching a video before I headed in on um, from Jason Lanier, and I, I really like Jason's reviews uh, when he's he's blunt, he's straightforward in his, his reviews of Sony equipment, um, his photography, like he's actually a photographer who shoots like really nice photos and reviews them, unlike myself who just reviews them. Um, <laughs> But anyway, like his work is good. I like his his style. But in his he he compared the baddest eighty five millimeter f one eight and the GM early on before anybody else really had access to the GM lens. And he had you know he's walking down the street taking photos of a of a model. And he had past like people who were who joined him for this video. And um, he just kind of handed both lenses, both cameras with both lenses, to different people and everybody kind of, um, compared them weight wise and everybody in that video, there were four different people in that video who said that the weight was ne- the weight difference was negligible or imperceptible. You know, you wouldn't notice the difference in weight. Right. And I just like, I, I expected the weight difference to therefore be imperceptible, but it's not like those pe- I actually flat out disagree with all of those people. Um, I, maybe they were amped up because, you know, they were on a video where lots of people are going to watch it and they were excited and their muscles were twitching at the right times and they picked them up and it was like, oh, you know, they're both light as a feather. I don't know. But they're just like, they're just not the same weight. Yeah, no, 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 not even close. I mean, one is no almost twice the, the weight of the other. Right. So it's not like you could accidentally get it mixed up, I would say. No, that, that's exactly right. Like, uh, so anyway, now I've gone back to watch all of Jason's video, and um, I think I I 100% agree with his final conclusion that the GM is the better lens, and I actually do believe that it is worth the extra money without a doubt. But um, that little part annoyed me because I felt like I don't know. It's I I don't think I can call them out and say that they're they're lying. I because I think that it, there's a lot of other scenarios at play. Maybe they're using a pre-production lens which was lighter. I, it could be. Um, but all I know is that the lenses are not the same weight. It is not an imperceptible difference. Right. There is a difference. And I am choosing actually to keep the baddest at least for the next few months because I don't want to carry the big GM lens on our travels. It's just too big. So there we go. That's my five minute impression. It took 15 minutes to discuss. I completely agree with you with everything you just said. And uh, I also saw the video that you mentioned a few days ago. And I was instantly bothered by it because you don't have to, I mean, you, you have actually held both in your hands, but you don't need to, to know that that's not possible. What they, what they're saying in the video is not possible. Right. I mean, it's twice the weight, right? There's no way people don't notice that. Right. Like the spec sheets are pretty clear. Like if it was two grams versus one gram or one ounce versus two ounce, like, okay, that might be imperceptible, but we're talking about like one pound, 12 ounces, right? Like yeah. one pound to a half a pound. Like there's a, that's a big difference. Yes, yes it is. Like a stick of butter, a one pound chunk of butter and a half a pound chunk of butter in your left hand. And like, you're, you're going to notice the difference. Right. And there's also something else about that video that I didn't really like, which is that he seemed way too dismissive about the baddies. I mean, he, 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 a few times he says, I love the baddies, this is a great lens, I really love it. But he was, I believe, overplaying the difference in image quality between the two. Uh, you know, uh, I've looked at the pictures he shows in the video and I don't see, I mean, I do see a difference, but it's not like as pronounced as you would imagine just by what he says. Right. Like you could tell the difference. I'm sure that if you had the same image side by side, you know, um, a person who is well-researched would very quickly see the difference. Like there's a difference in the bokeh, like the way the the background is blurred out and shaped. Um, The baddest is very like swirly, uh, whereas the GM is just fades away into mush. Um, So it depends. Like, you know, you might have a, you can tell the difference, but you're right. Like he, he definitely, he plays it up. there's no doubt Uh, if somebody doesn't know that both lenses render the background differently they they might they might not know the difference right he also doesn't mention that the bodies is stabilized for example 
Good point. Which is not not an insignificant difference, in my book at least. So it, what I mean, the, the whole point of this is that you can't always uh, trust 100% what you see in these videos. And that's a shame, because uh, a person like Jason Lanier, who, who is you know, a respected photographer and professional, uh, I just, I, I don't, it leaves me a little flat when, when I see these things in some of their work. And, and, and it's not just him, but he's the one mm -hmm. we're talking about right. right now. Even we're guilty of it, right? Like we review stuff and without a doubt, you know, our, our love for something might be more than the next person. And therefore we exaggerate things like we're not inept or not. That's not the right word. We're not, um, exempt from from this for sure no no not at all exactly and perhaps precisely because we review products ourselves we are more aware of this perhaps for regular people it's not such a big deal but uh maybe we we hold them to a higher standard because of that right but and and the thing is um you just cannot separate uh when a person like jason lanier who is uh, a Sony artisan, which is Sony's, uh, you know, marketing speak for uh, certain photographers that they have a commercial relationship with. You cannot pretend that that doesn't play a part in these videos, especially when you come across things like this, right? That are so clearly biased. And I'm sorry, but I, I just have to say it. I have to point it out because that's the way I feel about it. It's. I don't think it's okay to just say that everything about the product you have in your hand is perfect. It's the best lens ever. It doesn't have any any flaws whatsoever because he doesn't mention the AF noise, for example. No, which is another thing I didn't even touch on. Right. Or the or the AF speed, which is something that there's as much agreement online as I think is possible. Right. About uh, about this particular aspect. So it's just. It, I don't. I don't know how to put it into words, but it's disappointing. In the man's defense, he's he has spent more time with the lens than I have by far. So, like, without a doubt, he will have a far better idea of that lens. They don't get quieter over time. Right. Right. For sure. I'm. I'm never going to deny that. Like he, I would trust Jason's work, or any of those other uh, um, big time reviewers online before my little five minute article. However. I can attest to the fact that there is a weight difference, which is a very like sub, you know definitive argument. And I, I just that's all I'm saying here. I don't want to, you know, step and point too many fingers. I'm, all I'm saying is that it, there's a difference in the weight. And the other step is the fact that yes, it is. It focuses super loud, and I'm I'm not sure how that didn't come up in the pre, in you know, in the reviews early on before the lens actually got released to the general public, right? Um, because it. I notice I never I've never noticed um, autofocusing noise, but yesterday I noticed it. In fact, the salespeople who also saw the lens for the first time yesterday they noticed it as well. Um, so I'm I'm surprised that that didn't come up at all in the early reviews. Right, and there was an article uh, last week from Lens Rentals. They looked at over forty samples of this lens, forty different units, and their conclusion was that every single one of them exhibits this. Uh, loud autofocus behavior, this this loud noise, and yes, they do say that some are louder than others, but th that the unusual noise is present in every single copy of the lens because it's apparently due to the uh, design of the autofocus motor inside the lens. So that's just something that is very difficult to to ignore when you're doing a review of the lens. I mean, I don't think that's insignificant no and jason doesn't even mention it in the video but the other big uh, reviewer who who published a piece on the on this particular lens this week was steve huff uh, and he not only downplayed the the importance of the af speed but he said that his copy of the lens was completely silent that it didn't make the noise so on one hand you have a photographer who is getting the lens from Sony directly to review 
saying that the lens is peachy and everything is great and that there's no noise and the speed is awesome and he even says that it's lighter than the Canon 85mm f1.2 lens which is like saying that it's lighter than an elephant <laughs> it's just about as informative as, as saying that it's lighter than an elephant and on the other hand you have professional uh, you know, technicians and, and photographers who are not affiliated with Sony in any way who reviewed over 40 different units of the lens and actually took one apart to see how it looked on the inside. And their conclusion is the complete and total opposite as Steve Huff's. Right. So who do you trust at that point? It's, it's hard not to, um, it's hard not to be super critical about this because it's like, these are fundamental, these are like make or break purchase decisions, right? The weight and this autofocusing noise, yes. maybe not necessarily make or break. It would be make or break if it's a defective lens, you know, if there actually is a production issue. Not necessarily. I mean, I think for some reason, legitimately, it will be a deal breaker aspect, a deal breaking aspect. Could yeah. be. I, I'm certainly, um, I'm thinking that we'll probably see quieter focusing lenses in the next six to 12 months. I wouldn't be surprised if Sony finds a way to fix this and they fix it quietly and don't really, you know, Probably, but that would be an admission of guilt. Well, not if they don't publicly do it. Which is fine. I mean, which which is fine as far as Sony is concerned. But I'm I'm talking where the where would that leave uh, these reviewers who are saying that nothing is yeah, wrong with the lens I, to begin it's with? It's so hard to. If there's an official fix down the line, it's like saying, well, if there's nothing wrong with the lens, why did they fix it? Right, Marius, you've been awful quiet here. Uh, well, it's first of all, I I shoot Fuji, uh, so <laughs> so there's that. But also, fair, um, fair. I mean, f when when you guys are talking about this, I think that those reviewers would be left exactly where they put themselves. I mean, this is it's if the camera or sorry, if the lens does have a defect and that gets repaired, and they were pretending like that doesn't exist, then suddenly it becomes obvious where their allegiances lie and what motivated their statements in the review. And I think that that is valuable for everyone involved. Um, but I, I also, um, I mean, this this touches on a bigger topic of, of integrity in reviews in general and how reviews um, and reviewers of camera technology and really of technology in general, um, how you look at their work and what is... Um, what kind of relationship is implied as far as um, their relationship with the manufacturer and how that informs their review and how their relationship with the manufacturer affects how you interpret their um, statements. So this is, uh, I think, a, a kind of close to home topic for us because we also review products. Um, and so this is something that uh, I know that I grapple with um, when it comes to especially receiving products from a company. Um, or having an opportunity to even even just the simple fact that I can communicate with a company in a way that your average consumer cannot. Um, it might mean that I glean certain insights from them. It might just mean that I'm able to ask them questions and get those questions answered in a way that your average consumer would not. That informs my opinion of their products and of their service. And so it's something that I try and remain cognizant of when I'm working on reviews. And I think that this is... Um, it's complicated because we, we all have to take this into account and we are seeing it from both sides, right? Both as people who are reading these reviews of people who we respect and who we, um, you know, we follow their work, but we also see it from the other side. We know what kinds of complications exist behind the scenes. And so sometimes we will approach certain reviews with more skepticism, right? Um, which is healthy, I think. And ultimately that's, that's what I tell people when, when they're, um, you know, sometimes you'll get into a discussion with people and they're trying to find, you know, where, where to go to look for good reviews of products, you know, trustworthy reviews of products. And, and ultimately the answer is everywhere because I think the value of reviews is in aggregate to some extent. Mm, yes. Yeah. Good point. You need to have, you need to have, um, a very broad look at a certain product and the reviews that it's garnering before you can understand what it's actually like. Because first of all, every individual person will have their own perspective aside from any other biases. They'll have their own perspective that is informed by their history with the technology, their experience with it, blah, blah, whatever it is. That is the core value of reading individual reviews because 
if you find a reviewer who um, you notice that their their needs align with yours or their general outlook on shooting um, aligns with yours, or just that they're kind of, you know, you enjoy the way that they talk about things, that's valuable. And then you start following them, even if you understand that there might be some bias there because they maybe received a product for free from the company. And oh, then you think, okay, well, wait a minute, how? Because a lot of the times you don't know these people in real life, right? You, you're sort of, they're random people on the internet. So you don't have a sense of how, um, how much bias is behind it. So you've got to look at other reviews to try and situate everyone on, on a spectrum. But ultimately when I'm looking for reviews of a product, I just have to read a lot of them. And sometimes they all agree and that's great. Um, but generally when they don't, it becomes a little more clear um, where people's motivations came from and thus which review is the most honest in that particular case. Yes. Well said, well said. I don't mean to imply that there's malice behind these reviewers, you know, intentions, uh, but the bias is there and it needs to be acknowledged. Uh, and it might be that they're not even aware of it, but precisely because that happens that sometimes you're under the influence of, of a bias that you're not fully aware of, precisely because that can happen, it's important to say it when you when you detect something like that yeah and this is why um you'll often find reviewers um the, the good ones at least they will tell you when they've received something for free and it's it's not so much an admission of guilt or anything like that it's just saying look this is part of what's informing this review fyi just so you know and then they will usually say it's not you know i'm not giving them good marks or something like that just because they gave it to me for free or blah 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 but the point is they're admitting that this is another factor that's influencing their um their decision about whatever score you know what they're saying about the product which is important i think um the other side of it, and this is where I feel it most keenly with my own reviews, is that if you do receive a product and you have to turn the review around relatively quickly, I find that the bias is stronger. Yes. Um, because there's an initial period of excitement, especially if it's like a new company that you've never worked with before and suddenly you have a new opportunity to work with one of their products. There's a tremendous amount of excitement in that initial phase and you, you can be inadvertently blinded to a lot of problems just because you're so excited that this company has decided to offer you this opportunity that you can work with them that you can ask them questions it's a new relationship it's the honeymoon period right exactly and this is why this is why for me at least i always try and push whenever i, I i'm talking to a company about reviewing something and it transpires that i'm going to get a review unit as opposed to buying it myself I always try and argue for the longest possible loan period because I'm aware of this own failing in the way that my brain works, right? Like the first day I'm going to be like, this is the best thing in the world. I love it. And if I write the review from that perspective, it's not going to be very useful because it will be extremely biased. And that's why I like to have as much time as I can for it to settle down, for it to, you know, for me to try and integrate the product into real life and to try and like understand what my actual feelings are about it and how good or bad it actually is. And from the reviewer's perspective, of course, the the struggle is that if it turns out you don't like this product, is it going to mean that you never get to review products from that company again? And that's often a trade-off that you don't want to make because maybe this particular product is not for you, but they have other stuff that you're excited about and you want to keep that relationship healthy. And right. I think it's a bit of a false fear in the sense that if you're respectful in the criticism that you offer, um, it shouldn't be a bad thing. Like it shouldn't change the relationship fundamentally because from my perspective, at least, if, if a company is trusting you to speak publicly about a product and to try something, especially if it's before the product is widely available or something like that, they are looking for your opinion that that has some value to them. Um, now, unfortunately, some companies do this only from a marketing perspective. So they'll try and target people who they think will give a positive review and they sort of prey on these biases in order to come up with a better positive marketing image for themselves as the product launches. And that's, you know, that's something that you have to determine which company 
is which on that front. Um, yes. But other companies are very, very transparent about the fact that they're looking for actual criticism when they give reviewers things to review, which I think is, obviously it's my preferred kind of relationship, but it's also, I think, a good thing to see in a company because it means that they are confident in their own product. They're willing to let negative reviews exist in the world because they use the criticism there to inform future product choices, which I think is a good thing. I mean, that's how products ultimately should improve. You give them to actual people who use them as they're intended to be used, and wherever they find friction, you can make adjustments. Which would have been great for the Sony GM lens. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but to be fair, um, I believe in, this, in the era of social uh, media, the situation has become a lot more balanced because reviewers and writers and uh, you know, independent authors have a much more leverage against these companies when, when, when there's a disagreement, is what I mean. If a company tries to extort you into not publishing a negative review or they threaten you with not ever lending you any more products or whatever, if that breaks out into social media and it just catches fire, the companies know that they have so much more to lose <laughs> than the than the writers and the authors. That's a good point. Yeah, you would hope that there they would be, uh, you know, a little a little cautious when doing these things. Yeah, because that would be much worse for them from a PR perspective than a single bad review. Exactly. So I don't. I mean, that's that's me. But how do you guys feel about um, your biases when you're reviewing products? Like, is there is there a way that you um, work to avoid them or to address them? Well. When I'm enthusiastic about a product, I think it just shows. I don't think I can... I'm very good at hiding it, and I don't think I should hide it, to be honest. But I, I do try to be thorough and fair when when explaining what I don't like so much about a product. So it's a, it's a tricky balance to hit, definitely. But uh, as far as my own work goes, I haven't been in the position that you are in uh, Marius, which is that I don't usually get free products from companies to review. Right. Uh, most, I would say, every single one of the reviews I've written, I paid for the product with my own money. And that doesn't fully eliminate the biases, of course, because, uh, for example, I love uh, Apple products. And anybody who's been reading my site for, for, for a while will know this. And... I don't think I would be objective if I had to review an Android phone right now. Yeah. I don't think I could be, right? So the the there are several issues there because I would be contending with a hardware that I'm not used to, with a design philosophy that I'm not familiar with, that I don't necessarily necessarily agree with, and a new operating system on top of that which feels completely new to me because I've never been an Android user. So it would take me quite a long time to be able to write an, an honest, objective review of an Android phone, for example. I don't know that I could do it uh, without a substantial effort on my part. And the truth is, I just don't feel like I want to do that, right. which is why I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if I had to do that, if I had to because it was an assignment from uh, a magazine or something and I, and I was stuck with it and I couldn't say no, you can bet my bias would, would be noticeable. Definitely. I would try to make it obvious, or, or at least as obvious as I could. But that's something that you cannot fully eliminate, I believe. It's a burden, isn't it? Um, Marius, would you agree? Like, Would you call it a burden? I, I, I worked with Olympus on, uh, I had two lenses and a camera that I got to use for free for a little while. And I'm planning on reviewing the other two yet. But I, when I wrote that review, I, I struggled. I, I have to, like, I can make the admission. I struggled to make sure that I didn't let the two intertwine, you know, the, the want to work with them again in the future, but the reality that I didn't enjoy the lens that I worked with. Um, I concluded the review with, uh, a thing saying like, I think it probably is the best lens that they've made for that, uh, for that line of lenses, but like, I don't like it. I said that. And then I had that little disclaimer on the, so I'm not like a golden angel or anything like that for how I handled it, but I definitely struggled with it. Right, and sometimes there's a bit of an overcompensation because if you're worried to appear, uh, you know, that you're too condescending on them or, or, or that you're just uh, giving them a pass, 
sometimes you overcompensate on the other way and you're you end up being too harsh on them right yep just to avoid being perceived as if you're biased you know what i mean and but it goes even if you buy it with your own cash um i i think like if you buy it with your own cash and then you don't like the product there's also that admission that crap like i just wasted my money oh yeah so like i think that like i i think that the bias there's a bias in these reviews no matter what no matter what because everybody wants to like what they bought and kind of brag about it and be proud of it right confirmation bias is a very real thing right so like there's bias here no matter what and i think um as a writer dealing with it and a reviewer dealing with it like you you just try to deal with it the best you can and as a reader you have to make sure that you just keep in mind that um it is there and like maria said read lots of reviews because then you'll get you know, they, they should even themselves out. Yeah. My rule of thumb, and I, I think this is probably the, you know, the, the thing that I keep in the back of my mind whenever I'm writing about a product, regardless of how I obtained it, regardless of how I feel about it, I want to make sure that whatever opinion I'm putting out into the world, I do my very best to substantiate it with concrete evidence, which means that if I'm going to complain about something, I'm going to say why it sucks, why it sucks. Maybe it just sucks for me. Maybe it's not something that I think is a, is a, an overarching problem with the product. Maybe it's just something that was not a good fit for my particular shooting style, like it was with the Sony a6000, for instance. I was very careful to say that I think it is an extraordinary product. I just don't like it. I tell people why I don't like it, but I also make it clear that I feel like those are reasons that only apply to me and they would not necessarily apply to others. And I think this is where the true, this is the the mark of a good reviewer is if they're able to not just give you an opinion, but give you an opinion where by the end of it, you feel like you concretely understand how they arrived at that conclusion so that you can understand if that's something that applies to your situation or not. And that applies whether it's a positive or negative. Like nothing frustrates me more than a review that is just full of expressions of praise. And it's just, it's amazing. It's wonderful. This is good. This is what, why is it What is, why are you so excited about this thing? Like, what is, like, how is this improving your life, your workflow, whatever? Tell me actual things that I can compare against my current solution. Don't just tell me it's great because that's useless. The marketing blurb tells me it's great. Like I know <laughs> that's not a, it's not a helpful piece of information. <laughs> so that's something that I try and uh, just remain um, aware of is that whatever I'm saying, whether it's positive or negative, I just want to make sure that someone who's reading the review is going to understand where I'm coming from and feel that I have sort of justified that opinion. If they disagree with it, that's another story, but I just want to, you know, like give them something to disagree with. That's an excellent point. Hopefully that was interesting. I mean, that was kind of a... Teardown, smackdown, boom. No, it's interesting because I, th- I think we are in a, in a cool position because we're on both sides of that equation. You know, we're consumers and reviewers. Yeah. Um, and so we, we kind of have a perspective where we understand the struggles on both sides. Um, it's, it's, it's a nice place to be in. And yes, I guess I am um, very fortunate in that I, I do have some... Um, products that I review that I have received um, for free on a loan, or sometimes I even get to keep them, which is wonderful. But again, anytime that happens, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, I get very excited on a personal level, but on the other hand, I'm like, oh crap, this is <laughs> this is going to impact. <laughs> got to write that review now. That's the worst. <laughs> this is going to impact the review and I defer it. I mean, that's, that's honestly what I do. I just, I say, look, this is, um, we actually, by the time you're listening to this, there will be a review out for for the Wotan Craft Scout bag, which um, will be up on Tools and Toys. And that's, you know, you, you guys will remember on one of the first episodes of Candid, we were talking about that bag. And, and uh, it, you know, that was, I, I didn't want to write the review that early on, specifically because I knew that I would be very excited about this new product that I was getting um, for free from the, pro- from the company. And it's just, and I told them straight up, I said, look, if you're going to send me a bag, which I really appreciate, it's amazing, just be aware that I will make you wait for this review because I don't feel, uh, I, I feel it would be irresponsible of me to rush something out. First of all, because a bag, you don't understand anything about it until you've used it for a while in a variety of scenarios. Right. But also I just knew in the back of my mind that this there's this element of excitement that I have to overcome before I can look at this product objectively and make a judgment that's actually going to be um, useful to people. So that's that's why there's sometimes a huge delay. And this is something that that um, if, if you don't review products, you sometimes don't understand that you'll actually often have a product for a long time before a review gets published. At least we do, because I know that we all 
have a similar outlook on on reviews. Try to right, and this is why um, when when you're talking about like the big tech sites, they always publish a review like on release day and something like that. And what concerns me about it is that sometimes they're not given very much um, time with those products before the reviews go live. And in their perspective, their their main goal is to publish quick, right? That's their, right. that's the main thing that they have to do because for them, it's all about getting people to read their review quickly because they, they want to capitalize on that traffic. We're not really hungry for traffic in the same way. We're looking for authenticity. And unfortunately, there's just no way around the fact that authenticity takes time. Yes. And that's why you'll often, for whenever I, you know, a product comes out, you'll say, okay, well, wait a few months because that's when the useful reviews start coming out. That's when you get the honest time-tested reviews from the independent reviewers instead of the people who had it ready for launch but did not necessarily get the amount of time with it to give you a useful opinion and it's not their fault like that's just the way that that particular editorial relationship works but it's just you know be be wary of the fact that they are reviewing things from a different angle than the people who are publishing four months later right i think i'm finally almost ready to write a review of my 2008 iMac. <laughs> well, there you go. See, <laughs> almost ready. I think I need a few more months still. Just as you're ready to replace it, <laughs> yeah. it's time to write a review. <laughs>